and welcome back to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. And I'm Martin Cook. And today is part two of our podcast on the 1960s, another episode of our Century series. If you haven't listened to the first part, you gotta go back. Stop right now. Kick us off, Martin. All right, so in the second part, we're going to look at five movies from the second half of the 1960s, and then we'll get into all those segments that I know you all know and love. So we're going to be looking at today The Good, Bad, and the Ugly from 1966, The Graduate from 1967, 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969, and Easy Rider from 1969. Sounds groovy. All right, so let's dive right in with The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. This is a spaghetti western by Sergio Leone, which opened in December of 1966 in Italy and in North America a year later. Spaghetti westerns were a particular subgenre of westerns that really started to gain prominence in the mid-60s, following the release of Leone's first western, A Fistful of Dollars, in 1964, which was essentially a ripoff of Kurosawa's Yojimbo, but put in a western setting. Although there had been a few westerns made in Italy before that, A Fistful of Dollars really set off a boom in those kind of films. Spaghetti westerns are essentially westerns that were produced, written, and directed by Italians, but with Italian crews and a mix of Italian, Spanish, German, and American actors. These movies were generally filmed either in studios in Rome or on location in Italy or Spain. And this film that we're going to look at right now, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly, was filmed almost entirely in Spain. Sergio Leone was a director who had been making films for most of his adult life. He was an uncredited assistant director on films dating all the way back to Bicycle Thieves, mm. one that we looked at, and as we mentioned in the last podcast, even on Ben-Hur, which had been filmed in Italy. The Good, Bad, and the Ugly was Leone's third Western and fourth feature film, and is the last part of what came to be known as the Dollars Trilogy, along with Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More. All three films starred Clint Eastwood, who had been a relatively unknown actor before Leone gave him his big break. And this movie is often thought of as the quintessential spaghetti western, which is part of the reason why we're talking about it. But you can't talk about this movie without talking about the score by Ennio Morricone, an Italian composer who has written music for over 400 movies and TV shows. And this is the score that's considered his signature uh, film score and his most influential. Although he didn't actually finally win an Oscar for any movie until he received one in 2016 for The Hateful Eight. A bit late and probably one of those, eh, you probably deserved it somewhere else along the way, so we'll just give it to you for this one. around three characters during the Civil War. Angel Eyes, the villain, played by Lee Van Cleef, who learns about a stash of gold and begins torturing and killing his way through people who had to give him information about it. Blondie and Tuco, on the other hand, are con men of sorts who have had a falling out and spend half of the movie trying to kill each other until they also stumble upon information (laughs) about the gold, each knowing a different part of the puzzle. It leads to a final three-way showdown in a graveyard where the gold has been hidden, where, of course, Blondie, the good from the title, comes out on top. 
Zach, good, bad, and the ugly. Weigh in. I've known the score since I was probably five years old. My mom and dad used to just whistle whistle it to each other randomly. But I've never seen the good, the bad, and the ugly until a couple days ago. And I have to say, I fucking loved it. It's a great, great Western. And not to be a prisoner of the moment, but I think it might be my favorite Western of all time. Wow. I had no clue that it was three hours long, but I did not give a shit by the end because <laughs> I was just so entertained. I made, I always make notes while I'm watching these movies, but I made about 12 to 20 notes. They're just like Tarantino, 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 Tarantino. Op- he aped a good 80% of his style from Leone and this movie alone. Definitely. From- Which is obviously why he wanted Morricone to finally score one of his movies. I think he had tried before Hateful Eight and Morricone kept turning him down until he finally said, all right, fine. Yeah, exactly. And everything from like the really quick close-ups on the eyes to the, uh, all the way to the Mexican standoff at the end. I mean, Quentin Tarantino is the master of modern day Mexican standoffs and the uh, the impetus for the ending of Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino's first movie, was from the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I loved, <laughs> I loved almost every aspect of this movie. <laughs> no matter how the, the score plays over and over and over and over, but it never gets old. I love it every time. Also, I never knew the Civil War was fought mostly by Italians pretending to be Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who knew? <laughs> but the fact that most of the dialogue was done in ADR lent lent itself to the movie because it was just so over the top and so cheesy sometimes. But I mean, that's that's right up my alley. But that being said, it was extremely well made, extremely well shot. The set pieces were next level. The, the battle on the bridge harkens back to Buster Keaton's The General, I felt like. And yeah, all the shootouts were great. Clint Eastwood, just at his most Clint Eastwood-y. Just, oh, God, yeah, I, I, I love this movie. <laughs> it's, it's really good. And as you mentioned, the, the things that Tarantino ended up cribbing were so striking and original at the time and uh, mm. just really cool. Like those jumps between extreme close-ups and extreme wide shots, they really are very cool mm. and at the time very original. But they're, they're, you don't see that in, or you hadn't seen that up to this point in, in many movies. I also thought it was interesting that there's, again, paying attention to it at this time, watching it, that there's no dialogue at all until 10 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, is, again, too, yeah. it, but it works. You don't get bored. You're following along. You know exactly what's happening. And that's obviously another sign of a, of a master filmmaker. And, yeah, I did, I did think it's funny. I guess the way they made Spaghetti Westerns with all these different actors and these uh, different nationalities, it made it easier for them to market these movies in different markets around the world because they True. just slap on whatever... Uh, post-production dubbing of, of the language. It did make it funny at times when the lips rarely seemed to match up with whatever was going on. But that's all right. I got over that pretty pretty quickly. I have to say, for me, 
EY, Eli Wallach really carries this film. I think, I think if it weren't for him, I'm not sure it would have worked nearly as well as it did. Because for about half of the film, he and Eastwood really have no goal except oh, to alternately survive and torture each other. And Eastwood's playing this sort of stoic character who doesn't really, you know, very Eastwood. As he, he always does. Yeah. And yeah. this is, for me, this movie's all about Eli Wallach. I thought he was just fantastic. I mean, he's, you kind of hate him, but you feel bad for him. You kind of love him. He's funny. He's, he's just so incredible. And here, here's a little clip of Eli Wallach doing some great work. I've been looking for you for eight months. Whenever I should have had a gun in my right hand, I thought of you. Now I find you in exactly the position that suits me. I had lots of time to learn how to shoot with my left. When you have to shoot, shoot. Don't talk. Anyway, just great little line and great little sequence there between him and somebody who's come to try to kill him. And yeah, that's for, one of my favorite scenes. For, for, for me, this uh, this movie's all about Eli Wallach, as I said. Yeah, he's that lovable rapscallion that he's like he's just like this uh, slimy, weaselly type of character, but he's also endearing somehow, and that's always a fine line to walk. I mean, Claude Rains made a career out of that. But yeah, he. I agree that he does carry the movie because if it if it was just uh, Blondie versus Angel Eyes, it would have been fairly boring with almost no dialogue. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of them really talk that much. I'd, in terms of great scenes, one of my favorite scenes is where they're dressed as Confederate soldiers. And they think they're coming across another group of Confederate soldiers <laughs> only for these guys to arrive in the officer to start shaking the dust off of his uniform. <laughs> and the uniform goes from gray to blue. <laughs> That's that was just such a great little scene. Yeah, like uh, a third, uh, well, like two thirds of the way through this movie, it turns into like a Civil War epic because they are fighting on the front lines <laughs> like not on their own volition, but in order to achieve their goal of actually getting to the stashed gold. And that that whole sequence was just so impressive. It's true. It goes from a very small movie, and I don't mean small in terms of scope, because the cinematography, there's, there's great landscapes and everything, but small in terms of cast. It's basically a couple of people in each scene just talking, or many scenes are just... Eli Wallach and, and Clint Eastwood, and that's it. And then all of a sudden, as you say, boom, you've got thousands of extras on the screen in this massive Civil War battle. That really is a change and, and very well done, too. Yeah, absolutely. And even the end was just so satisfying. Just uh, Not just the, uh, the Mexican shootout, I mean, uh, Mexican standoff, but the fact that Clint Eastwood was holding the uh, locate the exact location of the stash to himself the entire time. And then he makes, <laughs> he makes ugly go up, stand on this uh, little apple box and basically hang himself and then, uh, takes a goal for himself. Just wants him to know that he has him in the palm of his hand shoots the rope just as he's about to hang himself and leaves him half the gold. 
it was just oh, it was just so satisfying. Yeah, it's a great ending. Because again, yeah, because we come to like Tuco so much, you don't want him to end up with nothing. So it's nice. he's he is kind of stranded a little bit there in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in, in this desert. But at least he's got a bag full of gold worth a lot of money. So it's nice that he ended up with something, even if he didn't really win win. And again, that's such a Tarantino-esque type ending. And even the, the character intros, what do we get the, the the final intro of the first three characters in? It was like 15 minutes in, I think. But every time the screen flashes and you get the, the good label, the bad label, and the ugly label, you get that whip Although they, sound. It, whip. it introduces it actually in the reverse order of the title. It, exactly, yeah. You get that witch sound that Tarantino is so fond of, and he always does those close-ups and freeze frames. It's true, it's true. And that's how like you either get a narration or an actual label, and goddamn. I know Tarantino has always said that he steals from the best, but... <laughs> This was a straight ape, <laughs> and he's and he's lauded as one of the greatest directors and writers of all time, and I agree that he is. It's not like he's no, he's not a punk for sure. He's no, but he's brilliant at what he does. He manages to take all these obscure things from these kind of outlier movies. It's not like he's you know remaking Citizen Kane or Casablanca or anything like that. He takes these kind of like I said, outlier movies and brings them into the mainstream. All right. <clears throat> On to the graduate in 1967. It's a romantic dramedy directed by Mike Nichols with a screenplay by Calder Willingham and Buck Henry based on the novel of the same name by Charles Webb. It stars Dustin Hoffman and Bancroft and Catherine Ross. Hoffman plays Benjamin Braddock, a whiny, angsty college graduate who's at a crossroads in his life. He just doesn't know what to do with his life, and his parents just don't understand him. A little bit after this iconic quote. Oh, my God. Hi. Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson. Oh, no. What's wrong? Mrs. Robinson, you didn't... I mean, you didn't expect... What? I mean, you didn't really think I'd do something like that. Like what? What do you think? <laughs> well, I don't know. For God's sake, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Here we are. You got me into your house. You give me a drink. You put on music. Now you start opening up your personal life to me and tell me your husband won't be home for hours. So? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you? He falls into bed with Mrs. Robinson, a cougar and a milf, before either of those terms wound up in the public lexicon. Throughout the summer, they have a torrid affair, but realize they have nothing in common but their desire for meaningless sex. In a majorly creepy turn, he starts dating Mrs. Robinson's daughter, Elaine. Once Elaine discovers the affair, she, understandably, never wants to see Benjamin again. He won't take no for an answer, though. This is way before the Me Too movement. <laughs> and he proceeds to stalk her throughout the rest of the movie until Elaine decides she wants to be with him. Or does she? 
It was not nominated for seven Academy Awards, but only won one with Mike Nichols taking home the prestigious Oscar for Best Director. It's number 17 on the AFI 100 list, down from number seven on the inaugural list. Have at it, Martin. This is one of the first movies that I can think of, and certainly one of the first movies that we're looking at in the Century series, aside from musicals, that really uses popular music as an important way in the soundtrack to really mm. set the scene, obviously with the Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack. And it's really effective. And uh, I think, obviously, it was influential and set the stage for a lot of movies since. One, one thing I'd forgotten was just how quickly it jumps into Mrs. Robinson trying to seduce him. That's within the first few scenes of the movie. I, It's been a few years since I've seen this, and I'd sort of thought that that happened, you know, maybe half an hour into the movie or something. No, that's that's right up front. That's basically what's, what kicks this movie off. I think it starts out with somewhat of a relatable theme for a lot of people. Okay, we graduated from university, so now what? But, yeah, you're right. The, the Benjamin Braddock character is a little insufferable. He's, he's just so self-absorbed, especially later on when... He's like, no, I'm going to marry this girl, even though she doesn't really like me and she doesn't even know that I want to marry her. But the the character of of the the what turns out to be the mother-in-law, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. Mrs. Robinson, is also very selfish as well. It's just a movie filled with selfish people, but uh, it's still it's still really well made for me. The the uh, there were two standout parts for me in the well three I guess if you include the ending the ending is definitely amazing but the first is the montage right after he first sleeps with Mrs Robinson right yeah and great. how it shows their continued affair and his transition as he's gaining more confidence because at first he's a very sort of sheepish character but. That was just really incredible, and how Nichols made it seem like it's one shot of Hoffman, but the background itself keeps changing, and it just flows from one scene to the next, even within the same montage. That was yeah, and he starts smoking, even though they made a point to say that the track star doesn't smoke, and he's drinking and smoking all the time now, yeah. Exactly, and that's that's a montage of a couple of minutes, and it's just it's great and very unique for the time, and, and seamless, really, I thought. And so that that was one of the standout parts of the movie to me. And the other is the midpoint scene. When him and Mrs. Robinson are in bed together, he wants to talk, and then they he wants to, you know, make try to see if this is something more than just physical. They end up mm-hmm. getting into this massive argument. And then at the very end of the scene, he, he says, Well, okay, maybe it's better if we just don't talk at all. That's right. just such a great scene. It's so well written from start to finish that he goes in wanting one thing and then comes out the end and and, no, and wanting another thing. And as you mentioned in the overview of the story, they both realize that this is really only physical and there's there's nothing else there. So for me, those were the two standout moments in the movie, aside from the ending, which we can talk about in a second. I didn't like this movie. Really? I'm gonna say it. Okay. Yeah, I did not like. I did not like it at all. Well, not. I'm not gonna say at all. I appreciate the directing and cinematography at certain points. And I chuckled at some points, but this story just totally falls apart. The second that he meets Elaine and takes her out on that date, it's like a pubescent fever dream. 
everything from then on out is completely unrealistic. I mean, set aside the fact that we live in a society where behavior like that would be uh, an offense that would land you in jail. <laughs> like, he's a, he's a stalker. He's yeah, a creepy he's motherfucking a stalker. stalker. Yeah. yeah, I thought Dustin Hoffman's character was completely unrelatable and unreliable after about the, the half, yeah, as soon as he meets Elaine. When he takes her on that date and tries to sabotage the relationship... I thought that was good because, you know, he was fucking her mom. So <laughs> he just comes off as a total psychotic creep to me the entire rest of the movie all the way to the end. And the end is pretty um, ambiguous as well because neither of them are sure that they made the right decision even though Dustin Hoffman was totally obsessed with her through the entire second half of the movie. See, I, I did like the end. I, I agree with you on some of those other points. And, and you're right that when he meets Elaine, the movie takes a turn. I, I'll agree. A, lo- a lot of that's unrealistic. For me, it's even a turn within one scene that mm-hmm. turns it unrealistic when he's being such a dick to her on the date and she starts crying. And then all of a sudden he runs after her and kisses her out of nowhere and then all of a sudden everything's good and their date's happy yeah. and they're yeah that just was a really strange and, and unwarranted turn but for me the ending justifies some of that because what it's saying is that obviously they were both acting ridiculous and impulsive throughout most of the second half of the movie and obsessive in Dustin Hoffman's character's uh, uh, point but Again, it's getting back to that, okay, so now what question that, okay, they both got, or at least Dustin Hoffman got what he thinks he wants, and she maybe did as well. And I think that ending shot of the film really is brilliant because it, you're right, it doesn't totally resurrect the a lot of the second half of the movie, but it definitely helps a lot. And just and it's all just in that one shot as you see their faces go from big smiles and they're sitting at the back of the bus to slowly realization dawns on them that they don't know what the fuck they're doing with their lives. I thought, I thought that last scene and particularly that, that, that shot was, was brilliant. Yeah. Maybe I didn't uh, express myself correctly. I thought there were really good shots in the movie. I thought Mike, Dick, Mike Nichols did a really good job with what he had. And that last scene is so iconic for a reason. And I did enjoy that, but uh, another another gripe I have with this is that it seems like Dustin Hoffman's character should have been like 16 or 17, and that would have made this movie a lot better because if you're 21, you enter into a consensual relationship with an older woman, like, who cares? Big deal. I understand that it was groundbreaking for its time, but I think if he was underage, it would have made it more scandalous. I don't know how this, like... Uh, I don't know how the the Hayes Code was kind of still influencing movie making at the time, but I, this is but this was based on a novel in which he was 21 as well. So I, I feel like if it was a much younger man who didn't have as much uh, experience and kind of agency, that this would have made it a lot more compelling story. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. I'll agree with you on that. It's certainly better than what the studio wanted. The studio wanted Robert Redford in the part. Oh, I know. Which, which would have been horrible. And luckily, Mike Nichols insisted on Hoffman, which was absolutely 
age aside, a better choice than than Robert Redford because you know Redford just would not have been able to pull off the same sort of awkward virgin thing that Hoffman had going at the beginning of the movie. It just absolutely wouldn't have been possible. So at least there, that was a case of again, a, an indicative of changing Hollywood in the '60s where the director is starting to have a little more influence than the studio, where the director is just like, no, screw you, I'm getting the, the guy I want, and it's not Robert Redford in this role. Yeah, casting this movie was an absolute nightmare. It was a veritable who's who of Hollywood. Everyone from uh, Doris Day to Joan Crawford, Lauren Bacall, Audrey Hepburn, Geraldine Page, Sophia Loren, Rita Hayworth, it goes on and on. They were all in line to play... Mrs. Robinson, and, you know, as you said, we got the uh, um, Robert Redford that would have been totally miscast. Uh, Faye Dunaway was in line to play Elaine, but she had to turn it down for Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, Goldie Hawn, Jane Fonda, and Margaret, <laughs> they were all in line to play Elaine. So th- this was very, very sought after. And even the uh, the the Mr. Robinson, Mr. Robinson, the... Uh, the husband of Mrs. Robinson, obviously. Uh, Gene Hackman was originally cast. Interesting. <laughs> weird. And they really wanted Jack Lemmon, which is interesting because the guy that wound up actually playing Mr. Robinson was Murray Hamilton, and he had very similar mannerisms and cadence to Jack Lemmon, if you go back and think about it. Yeah, you're right, he did. It's a fairly small part, so I'm not surprised they didn't get a bigger name. But you're right, mm-hmm. he, he was, obviously they were looking for a Jack Lemmon type. Right. Anyway, I, I, could, I take your points. I, didn't, I, I don't think it's one of the best films of all time, but as I said, there are some things about it that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I thought Mike Nichols actually did a better job with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 66. Uh, this is kind of really the first quote-unquote teen, because Dustin Hoffman's 21, but the first teen sex comedy that's been constantly ripped off and duplicated, even up to American Pie, where they play Mrs. Robinson, the song, in a in kind of an homage. And where, and where the term MILF originated. Right, exactly. <laughs> I will say that it does have some major Cameron Crowe vibes, if you go back to like Jeremy, Jeremy, uh, Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous, it kind of has that subtle feel where it's kind of all about the, uh, it's all about the soundtrack. It's kind of cutesy at times, but this this is a movie that does not age well at all, and for it to be number seventeen on the AFI list and number seven on the original list, that's just inexcusable to me. Well, so it's falling. Yeah, you're right, it doesn't age well, so who knows how it'll end up if they do another AFI list in 10 years, 12 years. Right. All right, so let's move on then. to 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968. This is, obviously, a science fiction film by Stanley Kubrick that premiered April 2nd, 1968. The screenplay was written by Kubrick and science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke, and it used as its starting point a short story by Clarke from a couple of decades earlier called The Sentinel. 
There was also a book by Clark called 2001 that was essentially a novelization of the film, and it was written around the same time and released to basically just after the film came out. But that happened kind of concurrently, so this isn't based on the book. Mm. To make the film as realistic as possible, Kubrick met with NASA numerous times and was given access to many other images of the moon and space, which also might have given rise to some of those moon landing conspiracy theories <laughs> if people saw Kubrick hanging around with NASA. Uh, he also made use of two educational films to help inform him as, as he created his vision. One of these was a film by the National Film Board of Canada from 1960 called Universe. And just as an aside, there is a National Film Board app that's available. I don't know if it's available in the States, but for my Apple TV, where you can go and watch absolutely everything they've produced. And so I watched Universe after I watched this movie. And you can really see where Kubrick drew a lot of his inspiration. I mean, it starts out with bombastic classical music and images of the moon. And so you can, I, can, I can just picture Kubrick sitting there watching these educational films <laughs> going, oh, yeah, okay, okay, I can see how, how I can use that. Anyway, by the time of this film, Kubrick had moved to England for a variety of reasons where he would remain for the rest of his life. And even though he was supported by his studios, in this case MGM, one thing this did was give him complete control over his pictures. He had... Uh, famously had some disputes with people like Kirk Douglas over Spartacus and others where he didn't quite receive final cut on his films. And for a perfectionist like Kubrick, mm. that was just insupportable. He just couldn't couldn't handle that. The epitome that. of the word. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely a perfectionist. This is the first Kubrick film we're looking at. He, would, he was famous for sometimes requiring dozens of takes just to get a single shot. But it really all shows. Kubrick began, began life as a photographer, and that eye for composition is something that is clear in all of his films. I think we've all heard the phrase, every film, every frame, a painting. And mm. there is really nobody who this is more appropriate for than, than Stanley Kubrick. So the film was quite polarizing upon its release, with some critics proclaiming its status as a masterpiece right away, and others deriding its structure and lack of dialogue. It made a lot of money in its first year, but it was since it was such an expensive film to make, it didn't actually break even until a re-release in 1971. It has subsequently been recognized as obviously one of the most groundbreaking and influential films of all time. Steven Spielberg, for instance, has called it his film generation's Big Bang. Mm. It went on to be nominated for four Academy Awards and winning for Best Visual Effects. So how the hell do I explain the story of this one? <laughs> right. It starts out with a bunch of guys jumping around in ape outfits <laughs> until, <laughs> until a black monolith appears, which apparently grants them the knowledge of how to use tools. We jump ahead to the future where another, another monolith has been discovered on the moon. As the scientists approach it, a piercing signal is emitted. Jump ahead another 18 months and a spacecraft is en route to Jupiter. On the way, two astronauts begin to worry about their AI companion named HAL 9000, who ends up killing one of them and tries to kill the other before he dismantles his hard drives. Finally, the remaining astronaut reaches another monolith near Jupiter, is pulled into a vortex, where he watches a sound and light show for a while before <laughs> ending up in a really fucked up bedroom. Is that pretty much it, Zach? What, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. <laughs> All right, what were your thoughts on 2001? 
Well, uh, you mentioned that 71 re-release, and I was just watching a documentary. It's called uh, 2001, The Making of a Myth, and you can find that on Amazon Prime, and it's uh, narrated by James Cameron, who was heavily influenced by him, uh, Kubrick. And uh, the 71 re-release was successful, apparently, just because kids love to get high and then go and watch 2001, which uh, I don't blame him one bit for. Because this movie is so fucking trippy. And I'm definitely glad that I smoked a bowl when there was about... Excuse me. When there was about 30 minutes left, because that's when when it really kicks in. Uh, I really like this movie. This is the second time I've seen it all the way through, though, because you kind of need to be in a certain mindset... This isn't like a. This isn't a casual watch. You you don't like flip through on a Sunday morning and come across two thousand one and be like, all right, yeah, watch <laughs> watch that while I'm making breakfast or whatever. There's just uh, there's tons to unpack in this one. You like, <laughs> we've already talked about uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Eight and a Half, but this one is on a, a whole different level. <laughs> like it really is. There's. There's a plot. There's definitely a plot. But to go from the dawn of man to whatever the fuck the space baby was. (laughs) (laughs) It was so ambitious. And I respect Stanley Kubrick so much as a filmmaker. Do I understand most of it? Eh, Not really. (laughs) But I enjoy watching it. Yeah, I was I was lucky enough last year to see to catch a showing of this movie in IMAX, mm. and you know watching it, I'd seen it before that too, just to, on TV, and watching it again here on my TV, it's fine, but this is really a movie that has to be seen on the big screen to be to be fully appreciated, and seeing it in IMAX, I really was blown away with some of the shots and just the grandeur of it all. Mm. And it's it's probably hard to imagine now just how groundbreaking it would have been at the time, since we've now seen hundreds of science fiction movies and TV shows. But if you think about what this would have been like before this, I mean, there were a few science fiction movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still or Forbidden Planet. The original Star Trek series, I guess, had started in 1966, but it really leaned much more into the fiction side of science fiction than the, mm-hmm. than the science like Buck Rogers. And yeah, exactly. Like yeah, exactly. But, you know, for a world that at the time was in the middle of the space race, and it wasn't until a year later that Apollo 11 mission would land a man on the moon, this must have been, it, it just met, it must have had such an impact at the time. The fact that we hadn't even landed on the moon yet really puts it in perspective. And it, it, it shows you how prescient it was because, I mean, they had FaceTime on the spaceship. <laughs> they did. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> or Zoom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, some of the some of the realism of the space stuff is is pretty incredible on the details. Like, even for a movie that might come out today, little things like the curved nature of the floors on the sort of spaceport where he goes. Yeah. And, and also how slow and controlled the landings of the spacecraft are. All that stuff was very realistic. Yeah, a lot of people, oh yeah, the spacecraft just zooms in like and like a helicopter, boom. But no, that's right. that's not how spacecraft are, are landed. And so all those details were just really realistic and, and pretty incredible. 
Yeah, and the fact that there was an international space station way before there was an actual international space station. It's, uh, you know, a lot of um, a lot of the sci-fi stuff earlier than that, you know, everybody was just wearing silver suits and, you know, drinking their meals out of straws, which they kind of did, but they kind of microwaved it or something. They just <laughs> put it in, like, this little food processor, and it comes out with green paste for Mush, cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Orange paste for carrots and so on and so on. But... Yeah, it was. You can see that um, Kubrick did collaborate with NASA because they that those were the technologies that were in their kind of embryonic stages, and yeah, that that makes it really relevant to this day, where you can go back and watch, you know, uh, any of those previous sci-fi things that you mentioned, and all the spaceships make this like. There's no sound in space. Yeah. So he replaced that with classical music and it was almost this dance of the spaceships as they were kind of just revolving around uh, orbiting the earth and the other, uh, uh, the other uh, moons and planets and stuff. And it was almost, it reminded me almost of Fantasia, the way this ballet of spaceships was set to classical music. It was really, really cool. Yeah, it was really almost like a ballet at times. The mm-hmm. way the way things were moving around with the with the music. It's uh, I will say one small detail that seemed unrealistic to me was just how empty all those flights were at the beginning, because oh. they were they, because they were made to be commercial flights. And yet right. there were, he was the only one on these flights. So there's no way that kind of business model would be sustainable with only one passenger. <laughs> a small detail, I know, but Kubrick was big on the details, so I don't know about that one. Yeah, and I was, when I was watching it, I was wondering how they made objects float in midair when there was zero gravity. And I thought it might have been on a string, but it seemed too fluid to be on a string. And in this documentary that I mentioned what they actually did was they stuck a pen between two panes of glass and two people rotated the glass in front of the camera to make it look like it was weightless, but you couldn't see the glass. So you're looking right through space and that's how they made objects kind of seem to float, which I thought was a really cool touch. Yeah, that's really innovative and probably didn't even cost that much for special effects like that. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. It's uh, obviously one of the most well-known parts of the movie is the part where the computer, HAL 9000, goes a little nuts and tries to kill off his crew. And here's just a clip of one of the most famous uh, parts of this movie. Open the pod bay doors, HAL. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Yeah, Hal 9000 is one of the greatest villains in cinema history to me. Just because he's so... I, I say he's a he, but it's a computer, so <laughs> it doesn't have a gender, but it has a guy's voice, so I'll use he. Just so monotone and so ruthless in his execution of a mission because that's what computers do. They are, 
you know, programs. They don't have real emotions. They're not subjective. They are built to be objective. So anything, whether it's your, you know, the human that operates you or not, anything comes in your way, the computer is built to destroy it. Exactly. And one of the things that Kubrick wanted to do when he was making this film, he talked about wanting to show all the aspects of space, sort of the the size and the awe and grandeur, and but also the horror. And that mm-hmm. definitely comes in with, with Hal and this, as you said, emotionless villain that just is single-minded. And that, that part's great. Yeah. One thing that I will say that I kind of blame 2001 for, because the end of the, of the film is really bizarre and, and kind of hard to figure out what's going on, and there are a lot of parts of the movie where there isn't much dialogue and, and things are just moving slowly. Oh, yeah, there's there's no dialogue. I timestamp this. There's no dialogue in this movie until the 25-minute mark and 45 seconds. Wow, is it that long? Yeah. Wow. It's awesome. <laughs> that's anyway, that, that's incredible. But I do kind of blame Kubrick. Maybe it's not his fault, but... I lay the blame at his feet for a lot of imitators that we've seen since where people think all that it takes is you put a movie in space, have people slowly do something, and then at the end they encounter some aliens that do some really inexplicable shit and somehow that makes the movie profound. There's there's so many movies like that. that uh, the, the most recent one being that Ad Astro one with Brad Pitt last year. Uh, okay. I don't, there's, there's been a lot of imitators like that, and I just I kind of blame <laughs> Kubrick a little bit because, because the ending of his movie was like that, and so many have tried to copy it. It doesn't necessarily yep. make it profound. Kubrick's but, like most, most of the greats, always imitated, never duplicated. Yeah. About that ending, what, uh, <laughs> what was your takeaway? <laughs> I don't fucking know, man. (laughs) (laughs) He actually kind of sort of explained it at one point, even though Kubrick's just renowned for never talking about his films and explaining anything. Uh, It had something to do with just like resurrection and rebirth. And this is the God that the, the the monkeys at the beginning would wind up worshiping because it's all because it all comes full circle and you know that becomes the uh, the impetus for the creation of religion or some shit like that, which I'm cool with. You know that's a that's a pretty cool concept, but I think it's like a lot of Kubrick movies. It's just meant to make you think. You're never supposed to come to a act to an actual concrete conclusion. But it's cool to you know sit around and debate it, and it's uh, really philosophical. And I love the ending, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. I, I won't even attempt that either because I don't either. <laughs> I can spout off some bullshit, but I'd just be making stuff up too. Alrighty. So on to our penultimate film of the sixties. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's a Western directed by George Roy Hill and written by screenwriting deity William Goldman. It stars Paul Newman as Butch Cassidy and Robert Redford as the Sundance Kid. Outlaws with hearts of gold. This powerhouse foursome would later team up again for another classic in 1973's The Sting. 
Set in 1899 Wyoming, Butch is the leader of a gang of outlaws known as the Hole in the Wall Gang. They're misfits, but effective misfits. Butch and Sundance avoid violence when they can, and their charm is undeniable. They predominantly rob banks and trains and fricassee their money on booze and brothels. But their fortunes diminish when agents of the Union Pacific Railroad, who they've robbed one too many times, are hot on their trail. They, along with Sundance's girlfriend at a place, leave town going on a whirlwind tour of America before boarding a ship to Bolivia to start anew. After robbing a few Bolivian banks, they just can't, to, just can't seem to go straight, despite Butch's wishes. They're eventually cornered by a massive squad of gunmen. Surrounded and outnumbered, they decide to go out in a hail of gunfire. This, like so many classics, received mixed reviews when it first came out, only to become one of the most highly regarded westerns of the 20th century. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning four. It currently stands at number 73 on the AFI list. It also made the duo of Newman and Redford international superstars. Thoughts? I the, overall, there it's a it's a great movie. There there are great scenes in this movie, amazing moments. There's a lot that I like about this movie. We can get into some of those those moments in a bit, but I will say overall, it's although it's a fantastic story about friendship between these two guys, the overall plot and story leaves me wanting a little bit. It, okay. it jumps into the action fairly quickly. It's a little slow into getting what the main plot is. But honestly, for a lot of it, the plot is basically they're just trying to stay alive, and it's mm-hmm. them on the run. And I think to some extent this is a problem with a lot of gangster movies, that they just sort of go from job to job without a clear goal. And that, yeah. that definitely happens in this movie. So although there are a lot of things to love about it, in certain scenes, and again, William Goldman is an amazing writer, and he writes scenes like nobody else. But I th- don't think those the sum of those scenes uh, are, don't don't make a, an amazing whole. I would say for me. Okay, yeah, I can respect that. That makes sense. I also really enjoy it scene to scene. But yeah, there's not really a uh, coherent thread that um, ties all these scenes together. As you said, you know William Goldman, amazing. I called him a screenwriting deity because. He is the end-all, be-all be all when it comes to screenwriting. He's written everything from this to A Bridge Too Far to The Sting, uh, Marathon Man, uh, The Princess Bride, another really, really great one, and, of course, Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> <laughs> but he was also, even more than that, maybe, he was a script doctor, for decades and so has uncredited on countless films, mm-hmm. including stuff like Goodwill Hunting. And he just, he was brought in so many different times to help spruce up a film or get the writers back on track that his impact on screenwriting in general is way beyond just the official credits he had. And of course, he was also famous for writing a couple of books about the movie industry and one which has a lot of great advice for screenwriters. So it's, uh, yeah, his, he had an amazing impact, that guy. Right, exactly. Any aspiring screenwriters should definitely go out and immediately buy Adventures in the Screen Trade. 
because he is a master of the eight sequence structure, as it's known in film jargon. But back to the actual movie, I think uh, Newman and Redford's natural charisma makes up for a lot of the pitfalls as well. They have so much chemistry with one another, which is why they went on to make another all-time great in The Sting. And uh, I think the main problem with this movie that I had was actually Burt Bacharach. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay who, interesting who never never obviously never appears in the movie but he wrote raindrops falling on my head but it's so anachronistic when it comes to this western that we're watching and while um like the good the bad and the ugly has a score that could definitely fit in with a western it gives you that real visceral western feel this was the exact opposite like you feel like you're watching a 60s movie because you're playing music from the 1960s when it's set in 1899. And that whole sequence just doesn't really do anything for me. And it's kind of at odds with some of the other steps they took to make this, to set the tone and the mood for the time period. Exactly, with the sepia. Yeah, the sepia opening and then the smooth transition. Well, actually, even before that, there's this silent reel footage of mm-hmm. these bandits, and then you get the SEPA opening, and then the movie kicks off. So all that was great scene setter stuff. And then you're right; it kind of the music kind of drags you out of the the time period that the movie's taken pains to establish. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just seems like Paul Newman wanted to you know ride a bike around and do some tricks and <laughs> show that he was still athletic, even though his hair was going gray. <laughs> <laughs> And this is our second movie, uh, seeing Catherine Ross after Mm -hmm. The Graduate. And it's kind of surprising that she didn't... These were two huge movies, but besides this, she didn't do that much. She wasn't wasn't a huge name, or at least this hasn't gone down in movie history as a huge name, but uh, those were two pretty big movies in the 60s she was in. Apparently, she's uh, married to Sam Elliott and has been for a long time, I discovered as I I was looking into this movie. That's a that's a nice middle matchup then. Yeah, I will say okay because because I panned some well I panned the overall structure of the movie a little bit at the beginning. I should talk about some of the things that I really liked about it, and some of those scenes are just great. And one thing that William Goldman does really well is have these bit characters that are more than just window dressing. He's that scene with the poor kind of loser sheriff when he's trying to wrestle up the posse, for instance. <laughs> yeah. He's just having no luck whatsoever. That's just such a great example of having a minor character that's just as interesting as the as the main parts. And and the character of Woodcock, the poor guy in the train who's always trying to protect the money yeah, <laughs> I work great. for. <laughs> that guy, just all these great little bit characters. Those are throughout yeah. this movie and, and just Look, fantastic. Is that you again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Butch. You know I'd let you have the money, but it doesn't belong to me. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. So that's great. There, there's that scene when they first when they first get to Bolivia and then they walk into the bank to try to rob mm. it and they suddenly realize that they don't know how to speak Spanish. And so then they have to go back to Catherine Ross's character and get to get to learn how to speak Spanish. That was great. These, some of the lines are just hilarious too. The line right near the very end where 
where Paul Newman's character gets his his soup and starts complaining about the the meal at this point. Well, for, you know, for the specialty of the house, and it even comes cold. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> these guys start shooting at him, and he goes, "Well, that settles it. This place gets no more of my business." <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they're so charming, like so charismatic that it makes up for all the film's uh, plot faults. I think. I mean, I've watched this movie three times. I'll probably watch it again at some point. It's a thoroughly entertaining movie from beginning to end. But just from a critical standpoint, I do agree that it doesn't just all kind of hold together. And it's all made up for at the end, too, because I think I try to put myself in a movie-watching audience in 1969, and I'm sure everybody in the audience thought that they were going to get away at the end. And... Oh, yeah, they probably did. You know, they probably shot their way out, of it. <laughs> <laughs> surrounded by a hundred. Maybe they've got Bolivian. a chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got six bullets. <laughs> They're going to take out a hundred people. But yeah, the the last shot where they run out and they want to go freeze out. Just freeze frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really cool because you know we didn't need a Bonnie and Clyde ending where we actually see the bodies and you know they just get riddled with bullets. It, it was nice to see him go out as the heroes that they thought they were. It's true. It, it was a great ending. We've had a lot of great endings in these movies in the in the sixties and some really bizarre ones. But <laughs> uh, but the, yeah, that that's definitely up there as as a good ending as well. All right, well, let's move on then, speaking of endings, to our final film of the 60s, Easy Rider from 1969. This is a film that was produced by Peter Fonda, another great second-generation Hollywood talent, that was filmed in the spring of 1968 but premiered at the Cannes Film Festival on May 12, 1969. It wasn't the first, but it is clearly the seminal counterculture film of the late 60s, early 70s. Fonda had already started to become somewhat of a counterculture hero for a few of his previous films and had an idea for what he thought of as a modern Western involving two bikers traveling across the country. So he enlisted his friend Dennis Hopper to direct and help write. And then the two also brought in screenwriter Terry Southern, one of the writers of Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, to help with the script. Now, script might be overstating it though as much <laughs> of the dialogue and scenes were improvised they would do numerous takes and then just kind of decide what worked best the film was produced for around four hundred thousand dollars although apparently around triple that amount was spent to obtain licensing rights to all of the songs used for the soundtrack mm. post-production took a long time in part because they were trying to get their rights to the songs and in part for editing, as Hopper tried to figure out the best way to make use of all the footage they had shot. <laughs> His first cut was reportedly over four hours long. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so eventually the other producers, aside from Fonda, brought in another editor and sent Hopper away on a trip so he wouldn't get away. So then the editor <laughs> cut it down to its final hour and 35-minute length. Classic Hopper. Yeah. In addition to the to Hopper and Fonda, the film was, of course, a breakthrough role for Jack Nicholson, who had toiled away as an actor for more than a decade before mm. making it big with this film. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, his first Oscar nomination, and the film was also nominated for Best Writing, somehow. 
It mm. was a massive success, even more so given the small budget, and became the third highest grossing film of 1969. It is seen, along with movies like The Graduate, as the start of avant-garde auteur filmmaking movement in the U.S., which dominated the 70s. So we're a long way from old Hollywood here. And for instance, the movie had real drug use on screen, which I'm not <laughs> sure ever would have passed any censors before that. Well, they probably didn't know it was, it was real at the time. Right, exactly. So the story is very simple. These two hippies, played by Fonda and Hopper, want to try to ride their motorcycles down to Mardi Gras. So they hop on their hogs and head out on the highway. Along the way, they face discrimination, they stay at a hippie commune for a while, they meet some interesting people along the way, including an alcoholic civil rights lawyer played by Nicholson, who decides to join them down to New Orleans. They then run afoul of some locals who end up killing them, basically for being different. Zach, talk about Easy Rider. I really like this movie. I think I saw it for the first time when I was probably 18 or 19. This time... I watched it immediately after I watched 2001 Space Odyssey, so I was still high at the time. And, <laughs> That's probably a good thing. Yeah, and I'm glad I was. It was interactive movie watching at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first real independent movie on our list. I mean, I know uh, Peter Fonda is a legacy, but it was the first like real you know independent feel movie to it. Uh, I like a lot about it, uh, as holding it up as like a actual movie, you know, there's a lot to be desired script wise and story wise and things like that, but it's an enjoyable movie. I think it runs a brisk 98 minutes and, uh, yeah, you know, you got the, like Jack Nicholson totally steals the show as you would expect and, it was cool to see him as a, you know, a spry young man with a really uh, convincing Southern accent, even though he still has his like famous cackle and the really sharp eyebrows and everything like that. It's a goddamn shame that they killed him off <laughs> very, uh, very soon after his introduction. Overall, yeah, I like it. Uh, the soundtrack makes the movie, which... Uh, no question. Yeah, you know, it, it was a good investment for them to spend three times the budget on the the songs because just watching Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper ride motorcycles on Route 66 is only so exciting. Yeah, but then when you add music by Steppenwolf and the Birds and the band and Jimi Hendrix, the, right. that soundtrack is just incredible. It takes the little movements that had started with the graduate in terms of popular music and movies and really just blows it out of the water and takes it to another level. And you're right, without it, it the, the movie wouldn't really have worked the same way. It's, uh, it's almost as important as the movie, I think, in, in, many, in many ways. The, there are a few moments where there's some, some great speechifying, I guess, uh, probably most notably in this speech by Jack Nicholson where he's talking about freedom and they're sitting around the uh, the campfire. Have a listen. Amen. Oh, we represent to them, man, as somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, what you represent to them is freedom. 
What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No, it makes them dangerous. And that, that kind of talks about... I guess the overall theme of the movie, which is right. that some people just don't like you because you're different and because they're scared of your freedom. And so it, it was it was a good movie in that it did at least have a through line in terms of theme and message. So it wasn't, even though a lot of it was scattered and somewhat meandering, it wasn't entirely directionless because it did have that theme, at least... They had an outward goal of getting to Mardi Gras. So the basic structure was there, which I think kept it on its toes, whereas if it had been entirely directionless, it would have been a lot harder to, to just sit and watch these guys roam around for, for no reason on their on their motorcycles. Yeah, I agree. I think they should have just eliminated the whole uh, selling Coke thing from the beginning like i get that they you know they wanted to show that these guys were in the counterculture but you know they were smoking the grass anyway so it didn't really matter but they never actually sold any coke no it didn't really go anywhere and there's that one part where hopper gets really mad because oh that's that's everything we've been working for right there in your gas tank and you're just letting some dude fill it but then Mm -hmm. nothing really happens with that coke in the movie so that was kind of bizarre except it explodes at the end yeah (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it just should have been a road trip movie from you know L.A. to New Orleans to go to Mardi Gras. But I think it just they just wanted to be a bit more edgy because they it only came up like two or three times, and it, they were smoking a lot more weed than they were you know getting high on their own supply as far as the coke goes in the gas tank. Definitely. It's cool that we've seen two Henry Fonda movies uh, leading up to this, so we can kind of see how the you know the town is passed down because Peter sounds just like his dad. He does. Yeah. Like the only thing is that it's a good thing. Uh, Peter wore those glasses most of the time because he's got some real bug eyes. <laughs> Anytime he take the glasses off, his eyes look like a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why he wore them most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on the, on the deaths at the end of the movie? I don't know if it was just for shock value, which it definitely seems like at the end, you know, because if they were really trying to tout the virtues of the counterculture, you would think that they would succeed in their mission or maybe one of them would die and the other would learn something about himself and, you know, kind of have something to take away from this journey. But I think it was just the, uh, the nihilism of the time, like, Oh man, it doesn't matter what you do. You're just gonna die in the end anyway, man. <laughs> so I think that's what I took away. Although I do think it was kind of just for shock value. I, I tend to agree. I think it, for me, it came out of nowhere a little bit. I guess maybe that's kind of the point, especially mm-hmm. illustrated by that clip from uh, Jack Nicholson that we played. That 
that violence against people who are different is is sort of random and illogical. But so it kind of plays into that. I get that. But I'm not sure that it's all that narratively satisfying for the movie. Yeah, it's just so That abrupt. they're just driving around and then, boom, okay, these guys are just killed on the road. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of how the movie ends. I, I'm not a huge fan of that ending. Yeah, me neither. I think there should have been at least one of the characters surviving and being like, well, I'm going to... I'm going to sell this Coke for you, man. <laughs> something. I don't know. But it is the, the quintessential counterculture movie, and we would be remiss if we didn't include that when we're talking about the 60s in our Century series. So that concludes our talk about the movies in the 60s, and now we're going to go to those segments that you know and love that are going to win... All the Webby Awards. <laughs> Who missed the cut? All right. So one of the first ones that missed the cut and the, one of the toughest omissions is obviously Psycho from 1960. We talked about Hitchcock in, the, in our last podcast on the 50s. We mentioned that it was possible that Vertigo was the only Hitchcock movie that we were going to do, and it turns out that that's correct. It's just... We'd, we'd already seen Hitchcock, and we know that he's such a big figure, but it was hard to bump anything else off this list for a movie that we already kind of know what we were getting with Hitchcock. So even though it's a brilliant movie, it's influential, it's all the things you can laud about it are absolutely true, we just couldn't really squeeze it in. And next we have Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1961. Poor Audrey Hepburn. She just cannot break into our discussion that much. But she was one of the best actresses of her generation. Breakfast at Tiffany's is one of the best romantic comedies of all time. But it was probably between that and The Graduate. And we had to go with The Graduate because of the way that it kind of typifies this uh, turning point in the 60s, whereas Breakfast at Tiffany's was kind of more of an old Hollywood-type movie. Next up, we did not make room for Dr. Strangelove. We tried. I, we tried. <laughs> we did, actually. This is this is one we really argued about. And this was probably the last one we left off the list. In the end, we decided to only go with one Kubrick movie, and even though Kubrick movies are also very different. But we went with 2001, A Space Odyssey, instead, and just, yeah, could not find room for two Kubrick movies on the list. Yeah, we've already done a few, um, uh, you know, satirical movies about war and while Dr. Strangelove is groundbreaking in its own right 2001 just totally changed the game as far as sci-fi is concerned so now on to the sound of music in 1965 I watched this movie for the first time quite recently about really? a month ago wow yeah. okay because <laughs> I'm doing the, uh, the AFI 100 watch through while I'm also kind of doing this so oh, i've seen that movie yeah, a million times since i was a kid oh man okay yeah it's a great movie great musical i'm surprised that you've watched it so many times martin given your absolute disdain for musicals <laughs> it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the few musicals that's that's an exception for me i, I do like uh, 
I do like it because the story itself is good. And, you know, Nazi villains. It's hard to go wrong with yeah, Nazi villains. Yeah, but the reason why we left it off is because it was about World War Two. We've already covered World War Two in plenty of movies. And it's a it's a period piece, and obviously the Westerns we're doing are period pieces, but this seems, again, like Breakfast at Tiffany's, it's kind of more kind of old Hollywood feel, and we're trying to do movies that kind of break new ground. In a way, Sound of Music is kind of a stand-in for a number of musicals that we could have done from the 60s, including mm. West Side Story, My Fair Lady, Mary Poppins. They, they all were kind of in that group. But again, as as you mentioned, Zach, we, we're trying to show a transition in Hollywood in the 60s and musicals had been around for a long time and were just kind of more of the same thing in a way. Right. So the final movie that was really hard to, the, to leave off and miss the cut was Cool Hand Luke from 1967. Mm-hmm. And I really love Cool Hand Luke. And Me too. Paul Newman is absolutely cool in this movie. But there wasn't anything, one thing about it that stood out as particularly groundbreaking or influential that would have wormed its way onto the list instead of any of the others. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great acting performance, some very memorable scenes and memorable lines but it didn't quite reach the threshold that we've tried to set for what we're trying to include. All right, plus we already showcased Newman and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Exactly. So. so that was Who Missed the Cut, and now on to the segment you all know and love, Either Or. Either Or! <laughs> so let's get started here. Either Or, Zach. More revolutionary film, 2001 or Easy Rider? It's tough. It is tough because they're both revolutionary in their respective genres and in their own way. In the end, I'll have to go with 2001 by a, a slim margin. Yeah, a slimmer margin than I thought it would be. But this was really Kubrick's like definitive film. In his massively decorated career, I think he is most remembered for 2001. And like, like, like we discussed, it was so prescient in the, the way that it just predicted so many different technologies that were going to be used. And it just totally revolutionized the sci-fi genre. I don't think we'd have Star Wars without this. I'm going to go the other way. I, I agree it's really, really close, but I'm actually going to go with Easy Rider. Okay. There are parts to 2001 as groundbreaking and revolutionary as it was that still seem like they could have been part of another movie. The scene when the guy's given the speech at the moon base and just talking to the other guys and they're sitting there in very obviously 60s furniture and <laughs> that that kind of stuff was was something that we might have seen in a in a bizarre sort of way in in movies before even though the rest of the movie certainly wasn't whereas easy rider just felt totally different and in part I'm leaning towards Easy Rider too because as you noted it was it was really kind of a truly independent movie. So mm. not just about the content if it was just solely content and 
the way it was shot, then I might have gone with 2001. But I think because of the whole nature of how Easy Rider was made, I'll, I'll go with Easy Rider. Fair enough. More inscrutable ending. Eight and a half or 2001? <laughs> this one, you could really go either way. I mean, what the hell? But uh, this one, I will go with 2001. Just because... I think even though you're not quite sure if the dude kills himself at the end of eight and a half or not, you kind of get the idea that it's what it's about is him opening himself up to all the personal stuff in his life, being part of his work and his creative, whatever that message kind of comes through. Whereas in 2001, I still don't know what the fuck was going on in that bedroom at the end of the movie, even after that 18 minute light show for no apparent reason. So (laughs) I'll, I'll go with 2001. All right, in a in, in either or uh, first, I think we're going to disagree two times in a row for once. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to go with eight and a half just because, like I said, when we were talking about 2001, Kubrick kind of gave a vague explanation of what it meant, whether it was accurate or not, or if he's just trying to throw the audience off. That's neither here nor there. But... I was just so confused at the end of eight and a half. I didn't know. At least I I left two thousand one with a kind of visceral feeling, like oh my god, that was absolutely amazing. But eight and a half, I was just kind of like, okay, there's clowns doing cartwheels and running around in this giant spaceship on a beach. I was just like, what the fuck did I just watch? Yeah, that's all I said. I said that out loud to myself after I finished eight and a half. What the fuck did I just watch? So, yeah, for me, it's eight and a half. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Either or better courtroom drama 12 Angry Men from our 50s podcast or uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? It's uh, 12 Angry Men for me. It's just one of my all time favorite movies. And I think. Uh, Henry Fonda, I was about to say Peter, I caught myself. Henry Fonda was uh, just completely amazing. Obviously, Gregory Peck is amazing as Atticus Fitch as well. But uh, yeah, 12 Angry Men, it's, uh, this is purely a matter of opinion because both of these are uh, morality plays that are just uh, paragons of the courtroom drama. And these are probably the top two co- courtroom dramas of all time. You might want to throw like a few good men in there or something like that. But as far as just straight ahead courtroom dramas, it's a 12 angry men for me. We're going to go back to agreeing again. This, uh, (laughs) I think if the question had been more memorable courtroom, then I think I might've gone with uh, to kill a mockingbird because I think that scene, especially the closing arguments from Atticus Finch in that scene are the, are the most memorable courtroom seen possibly of any movie but if mm. we're talking about a better overall courtroom drama then i agree it's got to be 12 angry men all right either or hardest earworm to shake 007 theme or good bad and the uglies all right let's just uh play a short clip from each of those again. What, my version of the Good Man the Ugly theme didn't do it for you? (laughs) (laughs) 
It was fine, Martin. It was it was totally fine. <laughs> I could see that sing the James Bond theme too, if you'd like. <laughs> but maybe we won't subject uh, subject our listeners to that. We'll leave that for the bonus features. <laughs> So both of those are obviously totally iconic. You could have, the, after listening to those, you could have either of, or, either or of them in your head for days at a time. And I think it's got to be the good, the bad, and the ugly for me, though, just because it actually was an earworm in my head for days on end. And while I've heard the 007 theme hundreds of times throughout my life, if not thousands, the, the good and bad, the ugly theme just kind of stuck with me and I would go to sleep with wah, wah, wah in my head and wake up with wah, wah, wah in my head too. So that's, <laughs> that's my case. Uh, you probably know which way I'm going with this one. I'm going to uh-huh. go with the James Bond <laughs> It's And it's because, well, the good, bad, and the ugly thing does pop into my head from time to time. It doesn't get stuck there. It's just like a okay. moment where I'll, I'll think of the, that little riff, and then and then it's gone. Whereas the Bond theme can get stuck in my head for you know hours at a time. So for okay. me, it's the Bond theme. And last, for either or... Most epic score, Lawrence of Arabia or 2001 A Space Odyssey? I am going to go with Lawrence of Arabia on this one, and it's kind of a cheat because they're both amazing and they both really set the mood for whatever the filmmaker wants to have happen on the screen at any one time. But the reason why I'm leaning towards Lawrence of Arabia is just because it was written specifically for Lawrence of Arabia, whereas 2001 makes use of existing classical music. So that, for me, is the tiebreaker. I'm going with Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, that was going to be my argument as well. I agree it is Lawrence of Arabia. And that score was actually an earworm for me, too, because they play it over and over and over again. And it is an almost four-hour movie. Kubrick kind of switches it up a lot with his classical music in 2001. Yeah, he goes from Strauss to also Zarathustra to, yeah, mm-hmm. he's, he's all over the place. But Lawrence, it has the same original score throughout, and it's played with so many different instruments and meant to evoke so many different emotions, and it's played as an undertone, it's played as this bombastic thing with with the sun rising and anytime something important happens that music plays and that also got stuck in my head for a long time. So I'm going to go, I'm going to agree with you there. Time for who won the decade, who won the decade as a director. For me, this comes down to four directors. There were, this was hard in part because there weren't a lot that really stood out as having absolutely strong, full-on decades. Mm. So for me, it comes down to Kubrick and three foreign directors, actually. So Kubrick, Sergio Leone, Fellini, 
So Leone at the Dollars Trilogy, and then Once Upon a Time in the West. Fellini, who had La Dolce Vita in Eight and a Half, among others. Uh, and Jean-Luc Godard. You could maybe throw William Wilder in there, who was still doing stuff decades uh, into his career and still had a pretty good decade. But for me, it's got to be Kubrick. He was just such a groundbreaking filmmaker, even though it was only on the strength of four movies because Kubrick... And that was actually pretty fast for Kubrick to only oh, take yeah, a couple of, couple of years in between movies. But he had Spartacus, Lolita, Doctor Strange, Love in 2001. And those four are also different and also groundbreaking in their own way that for me, it's got to be Kubrick. All right. I've also narrowed it down to those four. No surprise there. And I wound up coming down to Sergio Leone. Okay. He had a relatively short filmography considering how influential he was. But he completely revolutionized the Western genre, which had, in a lot of people's minds, grown a bit stale. And, you know, catapulting Clint Eastwood into superstardom isn't a bad thing to have on your repertoire. Uh, With a fistful of dollars, a few dollars more, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly, the Dollars Trilogy, as you said. And then, also, like you said, he added Once Upon a Time in the West as a little cherry on top. So, not a bad decade for a foreign director. Yeah, not, not a bad choice. Not a bad choice. All right, which actor do you think won the decade? This was kind of easy. It was Paul Newman for me. Uh, he has, he's the man with the most famous blue eyes in movie history. He starred in 19 films in this decade alone, and he was nominated for three Best Acting Oscars. You got The Hustler, you got HUD, Cool Hand Luke, and Butch Cassidy, which are all phenomenal performances. And... He also has my favorite salad dressing to his name. (laughs) All for charity. (laughs) Yeah. All right. For me, this one actually was a little tougher because there were a lot of actors that had great decades. So Paul Newman was on my list, but he he didn't uh, take it for me. Also on the list, Steve McQueen, who Mm. was in Magnificent Seven, Great Escape, Cincinnati Kid, Thomas Crown Affair, and Bullet. That's a pretty good string. Uh, you got Sidney Poitier, who's in Raisin in the Sun, Lilies of the Field, for which he won the first African-American lead actor Oscar, To Serve with Love, In the Heat of the Night. Guess who's coming to dinner? That's also mm-hmm. a damn good decade. Yeah, Jack sure. Lemmon was still putting out great shit with The Apartment and uh, Odd Couple and a couple of Oscar nominations. But in the end, I'm actually going to go with somebody we didn't talk about yet on this podcast, and that's John Wayne who was just a massive star at the time. And he had big hits with movies like The Alamo, The Man Who Shot Liberty Vance, The Longest Day, How the West Was Won, and capped off the decade with an Oscar, finally, for True Grit. So for me, even though Paul Newman's a pretty good choice too, but I I tilted towards John Wayne. All right, yeah, that works. Who won the decade for Actress? This was a lot harder for me because it didn't see, actually seem like there were a lot of actresses who had a string of great movies like that. Mm-hmm. So for me, it came down to a few. Those would be Julie Andrews, um, but that's basically on the strength of Sound of Music and Mary Poppins alone, mm. which is pretty damn good, but it's only two movies. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, Breakfast at Tiffany's, My Fair Lady, uh, Charade, How to Steal a Million. That's a pretty good decade. Uh, Catherine uh, Deneuve, who was a really big uh, actress, French actress, and then started uh, getting into American films as well. So she also had a really good a- decade. In the end, I guess I'm going with Elizabeth Taylor, 
Oh, who, uh, <laughs> was that your choice as well? <laughs> as well. Okay, so Elizabeth Taylor, she won two Oscars, one for Butterfield 8 and another for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She was also Cleopatra, for God's sake. Mm. So, and she was just a massive star, even beyond what you saw on the screen. She was just in all the headlines all the time. So for me, it's got to be Elizabeth Taylor. Yep. It was a tough one. <laughs> you, know, you had Julie Andrews, Audrey Hepper, Natalie Wood, Shirley MacLaine, but Elizabeth Tra- Taylor is ranked number seven by AFI's list of greatest female screen legends, and she did most, if not all, of her best work in the 60s. She and her husband, Richard Burton, tore the house down, acting-wise, in Virginia Woolf, and her turns in Cleopatra and Taming of the Shrew are all legendary performances as well. All right, so which genre won the decade? Two decades in a row, I'm going to go with Western for a multitude of reasons. I never thought that the 60s was like the height of Westerns. You think, you, you think 1950s, you think Cowboys and Indians, you think Westerns, right? But, I mean, obviously we have two on our list right here with uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But as you just said, John Wayne was in his heyday at this point, and it feels like everybody was going out of their way to do a Western. I mean, Sergio Leone was my director of the decade, and uh, Peter Fonda was in Once Upon a Time in the West, and he was cast as the villain, which was totally against type. So for me, it's Western. Okay, I'm going to disagree, and I'm going to go with spy espionage. Of course you are. (laughs) (laughs) Of course I am. But I have a reason for it. And this may be a bit of a cheat, but I'm going to include what was going on in television at the time, too, as as film, because there was just so much spy stuff all over the place. So you got all the James Bond movies. You've got movies like The Spy Who Came In from the Cold movie version of the novel by uh, John le Carré. And then you've got all these TV shows that started up around the same time on the on the backs of James Bond. So you've got shows like The Avengers and Mission Impossible mm. and The Man from Uncle. And the and the genre is even dominant enough to start having spoofs too. So the Get Smart stuff was starting in the sixties. Oh, so right, okay. it was just there was just so much spy stuff between movies and television that for me it's spy espionage. And yeah, maybe a little bit because I'm partial to the James Bond. Uh, maybe a little stuff. bit. <laughs> Okay, last on the Who Won the Decade series, Studio, Who Won the Decade? All right, the 60s actually weren't a great decade for studios. Uh, This Mm. is something we could talk about. So after the demise of the the studio system, many of them were in financial trouble and ended up getting bought out by larger, larger corporate parents, like MCA bought Universal, Gulf Oil bought Paramount, Transamerica bought United Artists, so no studio really stands out, but gun to my head if I'm forced to choose. I'm actually going to go with Disney. <laughs> you're, you're oh, guys. hello. Because after it established Buena Vista as its distribution arm in the 50s, it's really the only one that actually wasn't on the decline <laughs> in the 60s. <laughs> so yeah, their animated movies from the 60s were nothing to write home about, but their live action movies were really starting to take off, most mm. notably Mary Poppins which was actually the biggest damn hit of the decade. So I'm going to go with Disney, even though it's a really weak field in the 60s. Yeah, I had this is I had a lot of trouble with this one, too. But I'm going to go with Warner Brothers. Uh, they did the original 
Ocean's Eleven, The Count of Monte Crisco. <laughs> Crystal, I believe. <laughs> unless Did they I say were Crisco? already, yeah. Unless they were already <laughs> making porn parodies back in the back in the sixties, uh, like My Fair Lady, The Great Race, Marriage on the Rocks, Othello, Battle of the Bulge, American Dream. Oh, and uh, Butch Cassidy. Oh, of course, yeah. But yeah, overall, not a great decade for studios as they tried to figure out what to do with themselves after the death of of the studio system. Right, yeah, they were kind of in a shambles, and that's why mostly independent movies like Easy Rider were allowed to be the successes that they were. So we're seeing a uh, natural transition from the studio system to more uh, uh, filmmaker-focused features. So that concludes our coverage of the 1960s. We hope you enjoyed it. Now we're moving on to the 1970s, dude. What are we going to be covering there? Well, your comment about the filmmaker focus is really perfect uh, as a transition because we're moving into the 70s where that was really the focus of of a lot of movies that were coming out. So... The 10 movies we're going to look at in the 1970s, and yes, it's getting harder and harder to nail down a list of just 10, but we're going to look at The Godfather, 1972, Chinatown, 1974, Taxi Driver, 1974, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975, Jaws, 1975, Network, from 76, Rocky, also from 76, Star Wars, of course, from 77, Halloween, from 78, and Apocalypse Now from 79. Yeah, I cannot wait. These are some of my favorites on this one, man. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it lasted, of all the movies in the 60s, the only one I hadn't seen was Eight and a Half. Mm. And I have seen all of these now in the 70s, so we're definitely starting to get into movies I'm much more familiar with. And hopefully our audience grows with that. So we'll see you then in the 1970s. As always, you can find us on unsolicitedfilmreviews.com. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and groove on. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. You can find me personally at Zach T. Miller on Instagram. You can find me at J. Martin Cook, Cook with an E. You can also find us on Facebook at unsolicited film reviews. And we will see you next time on the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, Century Series, 1970. You've been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook, with original music by Martin Cook and original artwork by Dan Ohm. Sponsored by No One. We'll see you next time.